Coming to you direct from the heart of New York City all the way to wherever you are, you're listening to the VIP Jazz Wall Report. Ronald Reagan once said, Life is one grand, sweet song. So start the music. Our guest is no stranger to the musical world of rock. In fact, he's a musical pioneer in more ways than one. A singer, a guitarist, a songwriter, and a producer with album sales of more than 10 million worldwide. He's best known for being part of the famous Christian rock band Striper and also part of the classic rock band Boston. He's just published an autobiography called Honestly, My Life and Striper Revealed and his new album entitled I'm Not Your Suicide. I'm going to play one of his songs from his new album at the end of the show. Our guest is none other than the very sweet Michael Sweet. Welcome back to the show, Michael. Vip, let me find this guy you just described. You know, everybody says that. I'm very good at introductions. <laughs> now it's your job that to keep the show going. That was an incredible introduction. Wow. Well, last time we did the show together, it went viral. Actually, we got so many comments, and I have to say, your power and influence in the music world is highly underrated. That's amazing. Well, you know what? We, the one thing that definitely is underrated is the, the length of time that we've been doing this for. Uh, I, it, it's still astonishing and mind-blowing to me to look back and think, wow, we've been together, well, you know, on and off, but mm. together for the last 30-plus years. It's just amazing. But here we are. We're still going. Well, you know, I was really surprised by the feedback, but I was very happy for you. Well, good. Uh, nobody said anything about me. <laughs> I'm sure that's not true. <laughs> So, is it the end of Michael Sweet as we know it? Because people usually write autobiographies when they feel enough has been done in their lives and they're going to retire. It is not. No, I don't feel the need to or uh, the feeling at all that I'm going to retire anytime soon. I mean, mm. I, I have uh, one thing that I do know that uh, believe that God's blessed me with is the ability to to write songs, and I always have a song in my head, so. Uh, you know those songs are still coming. So as long as they're still coming, I'll I'll figure out an outlet and a way to to make them uh, available for people to hear, and hopefully they'll they'll touch and move people. Well, I've read the book page to page, cover to cover. Um, <laughs> why the need to bear your soul in the book? Were you hiding anything? Is this an act of redemption through confession? I think it is to a degree. Mm. Um, it was very therapeutic for me to write the book. There's a lot of things that have happened in my life uh, from, you know, I speak about, you know, being a punk kid and, and being arrested multiple times right? Uh, and just kind of eventually coming to my senses and joining my brother's band and, you know, and then fast forward uh, all the things that I've gone through, we've gone through in Striper. Um, and the flack that we've taken and whatnot, and getting beat up by the church and and mainstream, and then also you know uh, losing my wife and uh, you know coming out of that and everything I've gone through, and I, I I feel like to speak about it and to share my heart, which I'm that type of guy anyway, in a book is is was healing for me, and well, and and definitely very therapeutic for me, and something that I wanted to do. So that's why I did it. It wasn't done in the sense that, hey, this is my life and my life is over. Right. Uh, or I'm going to hang up the guitar and quit. It's not, not like that at all. And there there are incidents, things that, you know, I, I wanted to 
to share, and I guess, for lack of a better term, come clean. Well, I read the book. Uh, I, I read the book, like I said, and you write about your life in a very humble way. And, and there's a lot of irony in your life's journey from what I was reading, because even though you're part of a Christian rock band, and I guess people might expect you to hold yourself to a higher standard, uh, the book actually shows that you experience everything a stereotyped rock band would, you know, from getting arrested, uh, the alcohol, the women, I like the women bit, um, buying guns, death threats, you know, the whole sex, God, drugs. and really? Yeah. That's in there? <laughs> that's in there. Uh, the sex, the drugs, the rock and roll lifestyle, it's fully reflected in your book, but not in a glamorous way. And, and you know what? I appreciate your honesty in that. So what I really wanted to ask you was, is it fun being you, Michael? It's fun being me uh, part of the time. Mm. The other part of the time, it's somewhat miserable being me. And what I mean by that is, you know, the position I'm in in this band is I'm the leader. And I'm the go-to guy. And with that comes a lot of responsibility. And unfortunately, the way my mind works, I was sharing with you in in an earlier conversation, I'm a one-trick pony in terms of a one-tasker. I'm not a multitasker. And I can't focus on multiple things. And when I've got 10 different people coming to me, asking me for things, I just kind of buckle and fold. And that's when it's miserable being me. And I'm not happy. Well, you call yourself a pony. My wife calls me an ass. Same thing, I think. (laughs) Same difference. It is the same thing. But let's start. It's it's tough. It's tough. But that's the position I'm in. And and I certainly don't want to come across like I'm asking for sympathy, as our song says, or asking people to break out the violins and cellos and start playing them. But at the same time, I just wanted to give people a better glimpse into my life. Because I think people think it's all fun and games and, and picture perfect. Well, let's start with you getting arrested for indecent exposure. That was in your first chapter. What was all that about? Well, when I was a kid, uh, it it, it sounds more shocking than it really is. Uh, But when I was a kid, basically, um, there were two incidents, uh, one that I was arrested for, and and that was we were cruising down the street in my brother's automobile, and uh, my buddy and, and I were mooning cops in the back seat, and um, we got pulled over on that one. The other incident was we pulled over on the same boulevard, and, and uh, I went behind a dumpster and was urinating. And, and right at that moment, the spotlight came on me, and I got arrested for indecent exposure. And uh, it was it was interesting because uh, to this day, uh, you know, I don't really understand. There were there were all kinds of people doing this. The same thing, both incidents, and I, I just thought, wow, okay, well, maybe this is a wake-up call for me, you know, and um, I was just kind of, I was a bit of a, a punk kid. I could have gotten in a lot more trouble from starting a fire on, on railroad tracks with my buddy Greg, and we could have burnt down a house, and, uh, you know, it, just all sorts of things that I did right. throughout my life as a kid where I, I really could have gotten in some serious trouble. Well, you hit me in Chapter 1 in, when in the first paragraph you say, I despise religion. What do you mean? I do. Well, coming from a Christian rock band leader, explain. Yeah, yeah because it's, I don't despise Christ, I don't despise Christianity, but I despise religion. And the reason why is because I feel like, uh, more often than not, it, it, religion confuses people and separates people. 
And to me, that's not what Christ is about, nor that's not what Christianity is about. So I don't view the the two as the same. Hmm. That's just my opinion. I mean, I'm sure many people would argue that, but I just I have personally seen religion from Catholicism to uh, Judaism to to you know being a First Southern Baptist or whatever it is, a Presbyterian, whatever church you're going to, they all have their different views and they all argue about it. Who's right and who's wrong? That's why I don't like religion. Well, you know what, that that can lead to a whole new level of debate and we will be trying to do that on another show, but that's that's a, quite a moot point. Well, yeah, it's... You know, but uh, Christianity, following Christ, being Christ-like, uh, tr- uh, trying and striving to, to you know, they, they're saying, what would Jesus do, you know? And uh, that I get, and that I, I love and embrace. But the religion thing, just often enough, just kind of makes my stomach turn. Well, are you confusing that between followers of religion who actually manipulate the meaning of religion and thereby cause misunderstanding and yes. ill-feeling? Yeah, and I'm not lumping everyone into that same category because there's there are many great people with true hearts uh, that you know are of different religions. But the people that abuse uh, the power and manipulate the words and rewrite the Bible and you know those kinds of people and those type of people, those are the people that just kind of make me say, "Wow!" And I'm sure they make God say, "Wow!" too. <laughs> you know. It's just it's just one of those things, and that's never going to change. I okay. think that's been the case since, uh, you know, the very beginning. Now, in Chapter 7, you're saying you're living the rock star life. Uh, you're sleeping with different women, getting hammered, but you felt that something was missing. Now, in your experience and from your experience, do you think that in order to find yourself, you first have to truly lose yourself? Or does one find themselves through what they experience in life? I think it's a little bit of both. For me personally, I had to lose myself. And and that uh, losing myself was a, a perfect example of that was that period I speak of in the book, 1990, 91, 92, the against the law period. Hmm. I lost myself. I mean, I had a, a wife and a son and a daughter on the way. And here I am off and standing on stage telling people, you don't need alcohol. Jesus is the way, you know. And then walking off the stage and going to the bar and getting drunk with people in the club. Right. You know, and to me, that's the ultimate form of hypocrisy. And, you know, I speak about, you know, the things that I did uh, in my marriage that caused my marriage to almost come to an end. Thank God it did not. But, you know, all these types of things, and I did lose myself, and that... In doing so, and then eventually coming full circle and saying, I got to get out before it's too late, and I did, I gained a new life and, you know, a, a new view of my life and how to correct it and fix it. And thank God, uh, I was able to, we were able to do that. My marriage, my, my relationship with my kids, and I became a different person, you know, in 1992 and 93. But in all these years, I'm still trying to figure out why you formed a Christian rock band. I mean, you could have kept the belief and the lifestyle to yourself in terms of a, a pure Christian. Um, you could have had a larger following singing about other stuff. 
Well, I, it's, there's a reason. There's a reason why. I felt, and my brother felt, and, and eventually Oz and Tim, the guitar player and bass player, we all came to an agreement and an understanding that having lived the lifestyle, sex, drugs, and rock and roll for years prior to becoming Striper, right. and we didn't want to continue down that dark path, we wanted to be a light in the dark, and we wanted to inspire people. And we felt like, look, we're not going to just be able to do that with the music but we are going to be able to do that with the message and the music. Well, talking about being the light, you branded yourself as a pioneering Christian rock band. So were you truly the first? I, no, we were not the first. I mean, you know, a pioneering Christian rock band, I would probably give that first to maybe like, you know, Sweet Comfort Band or Larry Norman or uh, the Res Band, Resurrection Band. Uh, Petra was before us. But we were the first pioneering hard rock slash metal Christian rock band. Yes. So hard rock. Okay, so I should have said, okay, hard rock. Well, yeah, I mean, and, and even uh, crossing over into that metal territory, we were definitely the first to do it the way we did it, with the big hair, the yellow and black crazy outfits, the loud Marshall and Mesa Boogie stacks, and the way we did it, yes, we were the first that I know of. Now tell me about your fans. Um, the fans you have right now, have they stuck with you? Are they still fans from your past, or do you have a growing fan base? We have a growing fan base, but we also have that core following that's been in place from the very beginning. The people that have not lost contact with us and stayed up on all things Striper. But we do have many fans out there that lost touch of Striper. And eventually they find out, because we read the emails and get the letters, or shake their hand in person, and they say, oh my gosh, we didn't know you were back together. Well, yeah, we've been back together for 10 years. Oh, you're kidding me. You know, we get those kinds of comments all the time. But there, it's very surprising to see and uh, know and observe the amount of Striper fans out there. Now, one of the things mind-blowing. One of the things that struck me as a bit of irony was that you consider yourself to be a very shy person. And the irony is that now you're in a form of heavy metal music, which is the loudest form of music. So is that the antidote to your shyness? I think it is. It, it is an antidote. You know, I, when I was a kid growing up, I was the shyest kid in school. I mean, I would never speak, and, uh, you know, I'd always sit in the back corner of the room. Uh, I didn't have very many friends. I was a, a bit of a reclusive loner kind of guy, and, and part of that was because we moved. I went to four elementary schools, one junior high, and four high schools. Mm-hmm. So we moved constantly. So I, I, I lost friends as quickly as I made them. Um, but that being said, I was very shy. And I think this is an outlet for me that kind of forces me to, to come out of my shell. And even to this day, before I go on stage, I get butterflies like you wouldn't believe. I get so nervous and worked up. I'm afraid to go out on stage, definitely afraid. But then once you get out there, you're okay? Once I go out there, I go berserk. <laughs> yeah, I'm fine. Once, once I hit the stage and sing that first song mm-hmm. and I see the people and I can just kind of, uh, you know, somehow draw closer to them and get that sense of, of closeness with them, every, the, the, the curtain comes down. It's just over in that three- or four-minute period, and then it's fi- I'm fine. What's been your favorite song in all these years? 
Oh, my gosh. Uh, I would say uh, one of my favorites to listen to and perform would be the classic, which is called Soldiers Under Command. It's a, it's just one of those songs that really has, I, I call it, an anointing live. It has a power and a conviction live like no other song, in my opinion. So in, in, in your profession, you know, one needs to be creative because you're writing songs, you're producing the music, so on and so forth. And, and uh, I, I guess a lot of people either drink or smoke, uh, do whatever they have to in order to get creative. But in your particular case, do you think Christ was another way of getting high for you and, and the team? Well, I mean, it's sacrilegious or, you know, uh, uh, some might say this is blasphemy for me to say, but yeah, I mean... I definitely get high on Christ, and I find that when I don't devote enough time to reading my Bible or praying or that one-on-one -on -one time, mm. I feel like I'm uh, I'm not at my full potential. I feel kind of down, and, and then when I go and say, okay, look, I'm having a bad day. I'm going to go and pray for, for five minutes and just give it to God. I feel better, and call it getting high or feeling high on Christ or whatever. Yeah. I think it's a great a great way of uh describing it. Absolutely. And you guys you guys prayed as a band together. And I noticed in your book when you were writing about that uh bit about praying, um that you would also use it to relieve any animosity or, or um any ill feelings or stress that one had during the time of prayer. So was it just another way to communicate because you'd use prayer to pour your heart out? It is certainly another way to communicate, but not just with ourselves, but mm. with God. I mean, because we're, we're talking to God when we're praying, you know, we're praying to God. And yes, I think that's a time, it's a very intimate time. When you, when you pray by yourself, it's a very intimate time with you and God. And when you bring other people into it, it's really... There's a certain bonding and closeness that you share in that moment, be right. it five minutes or an hour or whatever. And sometimes we don't communicate well. We hold things in. We're all kind of like that to a degree. Uh, and, and when we pray together and get together in a room and we share those prayers and thoughts and we cry or what have you, it opens that door, the floodgates for communication, uh, you know, after the prayer. So we're able to talk more and get things out on the table, and it's really a great way uh, for us to do that. Well, you're a very passionate guy, so what's more important to you, your music or Christ, even though your music is about Christ? Well, certainly Christ, because in, in my opinion and my belief is Christ gave, gave us the music. You know, he's the creator, and, and, and he's the one that blessed us with the abilities and the talents that we possess. So obviously, uh, and ultimately Christ. Uh, but at the same time, I'm I'm very passionate about the music as well. I mean, I'm I'm always singing a song, and and I love. There's nothing like for me, you know, going down and closing my studio door with a cup of coffee and pulling my guitar off the wall and sitting and creating a song. So why do you say in your book, the journey is more? Let me read it again. The journey being more fun than the destination, and the, because in the music business, everyone dies for the day their music is a hit. And isn't that the destination? Yeah, I mean, I think it's how you look at it. And if if me as a person, if I could stay focused on the goal mm -hmm. 
at the end, when I'm on my deathbed, okay, to me, I want to be able to look back uh, and be rewarded and be thrilled about that reward that look at what, you know, I've been a part of. And look at what the music has done and how it's touched, reached, and affected millions of lives. Right. To me, that's what it's all about. You know, and what I meant by that, by that saying is, you know, often enough, the journey, you have fun out there, and then you, you, you go tour for two weeks, and, and you experience all this amazing stuff. Then you come home, and you just kind of sit there twiddling your thumbs saying, what now? <laughs> well, you know, the past always looks more fun when it's not the present. Right. Because in the present, you're on a mission. You have a goal to achieve. You have an album to complete. You have a book to finish. Now that it's done, you look back and say, you know what? Yeah, it was fun. Yeah. Yeah. And sometimes that what now doesn't come so soon. Sometimes, you know, you're sitting around for a little while and you're not doing an album or you're not touring and you think, and when that's what you do. Right. And you can't do it for whatever reason. That's not so fun. So now, um, the black and the yellow. That seems to trouble you in the book. It does. The bumblebees. Yeah, and people, some people get that, and some people don't get it. So and tell me, people, what am I not getting? Okay, well, the the people that get it. The fact that I have a love-hate relationship with the yellow and black is the fact that they understand, yeah, okay, well, you know, he wants the message or the music to be in the spotlight mm -hmm. and overshadow the yellow and black. The people that don't get it kind of, you know, have the uh, the attitude, and, and, it's, and it's a very understandable uh, point, and that is, well, the yellow and black put you on the map. Uh, or at least it's quite possible that it did. And you know what? It did, just like Kiss with their makeup. Right. Everyone knows Kiss because of their makeup, not because of their songs. Well, yeah, they recognize some songs, but they you instantly recognize the makeup. You know, I was looking for symbolism while I was reading it last weekend, and I thought maybe the bumblebees means um, <laughs> it hits you, so it's like the sting of the bee, and uh, it has the sweetness of honey. Yes. And, and it's very important when I say love-hate, because mm. I do love it. I do think that it's pretty cool and that it's our own brand. Right. And it certainly played its part in our success. But at the same time, here's what happens all the time with me anyway. I'll run into someone and they'll say, hey, you look like you're in a band. Yeah, I am actually. Oh, really? What band? Striper. Mm, never heard of them. Uh, what's the song? Uh, to Hell with the Devil, honestly. Mm, gosh, I kind of sounds familiar. We were yelling back, oh, yeah, yeah, the bumblebee. The yell, yeah. And that's how they remember us. Now, that's a good thing. Right. But the reason why it's a bad thing for me is as the songwriter and the guy who really works hard on creating songs and stuff, you want them to remember a song, too. <laughs> You'd like them to. Yeah, very so, much so, because so much work goes into it. Right. So that's my love-hate relationship with it. So quickly, it tell me, quickly tell me, what do you miss about being on the road? Well, we're still on the road, but not nearly as much as we used to be, or in the, uh, the way or capacity that we used to be. We used to travel by three semis and three buses with a crew of 30, and you know, just this big uh, touring organization out there. Now, 
it's six or seven of us flying everywhere. And um, I miss the old days of, of being out there as a family and, uh, you know, a lot less stress and a lot less complications. Nowadays, because of obviously uh, terrorism and, and all the restrictions you have when you fly, especially overseas, and it, it just seems much more complicated and much more difficult now to travel. Uh, and the economy is not so good. People, you know, everybody's feeling that. All, All right. bands, I don't care what band you are, in terms of ticket sales, and, you know, you have to get a little more creative to make it work. Reading the book, I had a feeling that you have many inner demons that exist within you, and here's how I got the impression. Chapter 13, you said, wherever I was, I would want to be somewhere else. Chapter 14, you said, you're frustrated that you're not known as a guitarist, but as a singer. It was a, there was a bit about where you're teaching Oz how to play, and he gets all the credit for being a guitarist. Yeah, I mean, call that inner demons or, or whatever you want. And, and what it is is the the part about being somewhere else. Yeah. At that time, in that moment, I, I there were a lot of things that were building up in me that were making me unhappy in, at that time in the band. Uh, in terms of the guitaring, I'm a guitarist. I, I started playing guitar before I started singing. Right. And we were a trio. And, you know, not a lot of people know that, but we were we were a trio back in the day. So it was just me on guitar and my brother and a bass player. And then we brought in another guitar player, which was Oz. Mm. And, you know, I spent a lot of time uh, working out solos and working on guitar parts that just automatically people assume is Oz. And I understand that because he's the guitar player for the band. But at the same time, I'm also the guitar player for the band. We're both guitar players for the band. And it's just like, you know, if you paint this beautiful picture and you put it out there and someone else gets credit for it, is it a big deal? No. You know. But does Oz feel your frustration? I think so. I, I think, and, and quite possibly, you know, I probably need to feel his frustration as well. Because there's a lot of times when I think Oz wants to be the exclusive guitar player for the band, or more so, and I do a lot of the solos as well. So, you know, I think it's a little bit of both on both sides, but I just wanted to express my, my views and my opinion of it gets frustrating when we release an album and literally a song I played the solo on, like No More Hell to Pay, for example, I played the solo on it, and then everyone, you'll read the reviews, and, and the reviewer will say, Oz sounds better than ever on this solo, <laughs> you know? And it's not a big deal, but it is, because he didn't play the solo, you know? So I just feel like, because I'm the singer for the band, many times my guitar playing gets overshadowed. And, you know, it's, it's probably something I'm just going to have to live with, and I've been living with for, for all of my life. But in your genre of music, is, is uh, being the guitarist the main recipe for the song? No. No. It's not. It's really not. But, you know, I'm a, I, if you knew me, if you spent... Like today, okay, everyone is off doing their thing. My brother's watching TV. Oz is in the, his room, you know, talking to his wife or working on a solo or whatever. Tim's talking to his wife. And I'm in the studio uh, working on guitar tones and tweaking my, my sound and working out solos and stuff. I'm, 
I'm I'm one of those guys. I'm very obsessed with because uh, of my OCD or whatever. Very obsessed with achieving the ultimate guitar parts and tone. I mean, I put so much time and effort into it. Uh, and you know, I think in the book, I wanted to give people a little uh, a little taste of that. But you don't know, you don't think? But if they were all obsessive, if they were all obsessive, I think it'll drive you crazy. Oh yeah, no. It they bring matter. a great balance to you. Because if suddenly you might have a conflict of egos or a conflict of opinions, and nothing gets produced. Absolutely. Absolutely. And, you know, I do drive myself crazy because I will work. You know, I'm, I'm one of those guys. I can go down in the morning with a cup of coffee and work on going gun, 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 with my guitar and working on a guitar sound the entire day. And my wife will come home, and it's dinner time. Mm. And I was sitting there with headphones going gun, 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 gun. So um, my point being... I'm a guitar player too, and I just, you know, and I. You hope just wanted to be known as well. Hope people know that. Yeah, that's all. That's all. I wonder what Oz would say. And Oz is a great singer. Oh. You know, and and he probably wants to be known a little more as a singer. And you know, I, you know, I don't know what Oz would say. He hasn't he hasn't read the book yet. Nor has my brother. Nor has Tim. And they will soon enough. They might say, and "Well, we're just I, following instructions," and you know, but, and well, you're taking it the wrong way. I don't think it's quite that way. I mm. I think you mean Oz is following instructions. Mm-hmm. Well, yeah, that's true, but it's not it's not really so much Oz in the sense that it's the people that kind of assume that Oz is playing the, all the guitar parts. That's that's where the frustration. And when they say he's great, he just keeps quiet and nods. Oh yeah, yeah. <laughs> well, pretty much. <laughs> And that's fine. That's the like, music I mean, business for you. Some, if we're doing an interview and someone says, hey, Oz, or, or, or excuse me, Michael, that's a great solo you played on, on The One. Mm. I, I would say, oh, I didn't play that. That's actually Oz, you know. Right. And, and give him full credit, you know, of course. And I think Oz does do that. Oz is a great guy. Don't get me wrong, an amazing guy and a dear friend of mine, one of my best friends. But, you know, it's just more that frustration of nine times out of ten, everyone else thinking that Oz played the solos that I, I spent hours and hours and well, hours next and time, hours. Next and hours. time the media yeah. misunderstands it, make sure Oz comes out with a press release. Yes. Yeah, in, in, the, in the words of Shaggy the singer, it wasn't me. Well, you know what? I don't even know if we need to do that because even if it's hard to believe with the book, right? I'm, I've kind of come to terms with it, okay. especially recently. Well, it, it's just kind of it is what it is, you well, know. And it's, it, is it worth getting frustrated over? Nah. No, you're in a great place now. Yeah, it's talking really about it. coming to terms. Chapter seventeen. You, you were you went to stay in a motel. You were part of a. You're doing a tour, and you walk in, and on the mirror in lipstick, I guess, was written, The Church of Satan Welcomes You. Yes. Um, what was all that about? Well, back in those, in those days, we got a lot of letters from Satanists, mm-hmm. and we, got, we actually got death threats. Uh, people telling us, uh, in an, accounting in a letter, sent to us uh, that, you know, when we come to their area, you know, to be careful. Because, you know, they were, they were going to take us out. And I, I remember going into my hotel room and seeing it was written backwards on the mirror. 
And, uh, you know, I had to hold another mirror up to kind of make out what exactly what it said. And it said, the Church of Satan welcomes you. And I, was it a joke? Maybe. Uh, who wrote it? I have no idea. Who do you think wrote it? I really don't know. I mean, my first reaction was it was one of the guys in the band pulling a joke on me. Did you ask around? Uh, I did. I told people about it, and everyone was real, kind of freaked out by it. Because it was also an area where there was a very large satanic church. And uh, and we had been warned about that area, and we had received some letters from that area. And it, so that just was the icing on the cake that mm. made it even more scary. Well, talking about scary, you've encountered strange people in your life. Can you give us some examples? Oh, gosh. We get we encounter many times the, the one in uh, a thousand fans that um, you know just kind of goes a little overboard, hmm. you know, and they, they 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 talk about you know the word scary applies very well, uh, where you know they have your photo cut out and put on another photo with them, you know, and. That obsessive you know, they're behavior. Supposed, they're supposed to marry you, and I, I had a woman when when my wife Kyle passed. She drove from Florida to my house. I was gone on tour, and she drove from Florida, knocked on my house. My daughter answered, and she said, uh, "I'm here. God told me to come and meet the man of the house. I'm supposed to be with him." Uh, I got home, read her letters. They were frightening beyond imagination. And after looking into it, she was part of a, a, a satanic group. She was part of a biker group. Uh, she was staying in a hotel in town. The police had to run her out of town. It was really weird. I'd come home at 2 a.m. and there'd be packages left on my door. Uh, it was just, you know, those kinds of people are that you come across every now and then. It's, it, it's a little over the top. And, you know, what I think we all face that as if you're in the spotlight. Why would you attract the attention of Satan's uh, or satanic followers? Why would you attract death threats? You know what? We always have. Uh, there was a show once. I, I don't know if I mentioned this last time we spoke, but there was a show on VH1 where uh, there was a, a group of Satanists, and they played our video for a group of religious leaders and a group of Satanists, and the Satanists knew who we were. The religious leaders did not. Mm-hmm. And the Satanist said, this is Striper, and the head Satanist of the New York City chapter church said, oh yeah, I love Striper. I'm a fan. I've got soldiers under command, and this and that. I listen to them. I, just, I don't agree with their message, but I love their music. We have a lot of people who are atheists and Satanists who come to our shows and love the band. Wow. Kind of interesting. So it's purely for the music as opposed to the words. Sure, and just as I would, uh, I would gather to say that there are Christians that go and see Slayer play. Right. Yeah. No harm done. Yeah, I mean they love the music, you know. Now, my having read the book again, um, the bit where y- you almost resent and doubt the integrity of the dis- of your own decision of sharing your success model of the band with your mother and your brother where you questioned her business decisions where you felt uh, that there wasn't proper financial uh, appropriation yeah of your success what was all that about 
Well, basically what happened was before my mom got involved with the band, hmm. she was just my mom. Yeah. And, you know, I liked that. Uh, that was really nice. And then once she got involved, that's when she became my business partner. And our relationship changed. Hmm. Um, and there came a point in time around 1980. 1990, 1991, excuse me, 1988, 89, 90, where I really started questioning the way money was being spent because, I mean, she was basically cutting the checks and my brother was approving it. And, uh, you know, I talk about how my brother's always been into big production. So we would go out and make 50000 a night, and we would spend seventy or 75000 a night to stay out there and pay for the spinning drum riser and all the lights and signs, which my brother wanted, which were cool. I thought were amazing and incredible, but we, we were spending money we didn't have. But you were not being told. Well, to a degree, but passively. Like, how much money did we spend? Oh, we spent it, but we needed it for this and that. I wasn't really getting into or diving into the breakdown or the details until I started questioning things. And were they paying themselves a fat salary? Well, yeah. I mean, everybody was getting paid a fat salary, but there was money that was my money that was being spent on things I didn't want it spent on. And I, I mean, correct me if I'm wrong, I should have full say over where that money's going to be spent. But there's only so much you can do, right? Right. You're writing, you're singing, you're uh, in the studio and, and, and you're on stage. And then, then to go and manage your own business afterwards. I mean, there's only, yeah. there's only 24 hours in a day. Exactly. And, you know, if I go to the office, the striper office, and I see a bunch of new plants outside and inside, and I say, what the heck's up with all the new plants? Why do we need new plants? Oh, aren't they beautiful? You know, well, how much were they? Oh, you know, we spent 20 grand or, or 15 grand or whatever it was. I would just think... Wait a minute. What? What is this? And did you ever after, felt? Did you ever feel? Sorry, that you were being viewed as a cash cow? No, I never really felt that. I just felt like basically funds were being mismanaged, and obviously so because eventually it led to us filing bankruptcy. But then you fired your mom as well. Oh, you let her well, go. Well, we, we, we did. Yeah, call it firing. I, call, I, I say in the book, well, I guess it is firing, yeah, but... Yeah, let's call time, it let her go. You let her go. Yeah, we let her go. And, and we relieved her of her duties. Yeah. How did that feel felt, like? She felt like she... My mom at the time said, well, I, I was leaving anyway, you know, so... Uh, it, was, it was hard. It, it, it's, it's our mom. It was, you know, that was not an easy decision, nor was it an easy decision for me to leave and watch my brother bow his head and, and, and be devastated. And, you know, it hurt. Well, you see, anyone, anyone reading it, uh, this, this portion of the book, they might think, well, your mom cheated you. Well, you know, I don't know. I can't sit here on paper and say, my mom cheated me. Did you, you, know? did you ever get the apology from your mom? No, no. I mean, and here's a question. Does she need to apologize? Because I do turn it around on myself every bit as much as her by saying, look, I was every bit as much to blame. Because here I am just sitting by watching it and not saying anything and not doing anything, not being a good businessman. And I was of age. It's hard to be every man, you know what I mean? Sure. 
I was an adult, and, uh, you know, I don't put all the blame on my mom. I put some of it on her, but I put a lot of it on me and, and Rob and Tim and on all of us. Now, when you wrote In God We Trust and you went on tour, in Chapter 25, you said you were worn out spiritually. Yes. Why spiritually? Well, I mean, I was worn out physically as well. I was exhausted. Mm-hmm. I got sick because of it. But I was worn out spiritually because I felt like I was a hypocrite, a deceiver, a liar. And here I am waving the Christian flag saying, hey, you know, don't do this, don't do that. Jesus is the way. You know, praise God. And, and I'm, I'm failing him because I'm doing everything but and I just felt like a bad leader, like a poor example. And that's what I meant by failing spiritually. Now, in your new album, I'm trying to figure out what does I'm not your suicide, what does it mean? Well, you know, when I was a kid, and not just a kid, but, you know, throughout my life, mm-hmm. I mean, there have been many times in my life where I've felt beaten down, believe it or not, uh, especially as a kid and bullied and picked on and just beaten down and just made to feel like I was worthless. And and then growing up and meeting many people along the way that feel the same way or that are beaten down or who are abused or, uh, you know, uh, bullied or what have you, to the point of suicide. And it's, it's a very, um, you know, in terms of uh, what's happening in our world, we see it on a daily basis. It's so terribly sad. I wanted to write a song that would encourage people. Like, look, that's a season. That's a moment. That's not the rest of your life. If you can just stay strong and rise above whatever moment you're in, whoever's abusing you or beating you down to nothingness, you're going to rise above them and that someday, guaranteed. Just stay strong. And that's what the song is about. It's an anthem for people uh, who feel that suicide is the way out. Well, in terms of, you know, what does well and what doesn't, in God we trust didn't do as well as to hell with the devil. So my question to you is, do you think abusing the devil sells more than praising Christ? You know, it's a good question, and, and, and something to certainly give some thought to. Maybe, maybe people think it's cooler to abuse than to praise Christ. I don't know. I do believe that praising Christ isn't popular. You know, if you if you go out and proclaim to be a Christian, you're opening the door for instant dart throwing, you know, and knife throwing. I mean, it's just the way this world is. Yeah, anybody, it is because... anybody that denies that is not living in this world. They're from some other place. And especially in your genre of music and your image, when, you know, you guys are like, macho warriors um doing something soft like praising god is left to what you know the angels of music but you guys are like warriors of music so i guess uh the perception is that they want to hear something about where you're battling the devil ah well you know where we're battling the devil is we are going into territories and in countries and cities Mm. and bars that christians don't go into right that's where we're battling the devil. Now tell me about that one incident on stage that still haunts you because I found <laughs> it, it it's it's um I shouldn't be laughing but I can't help laughing so I'm going to keep laughing. But uh tell me about that and and we want to hear the song as well so give us a quick 
rundown. It's the story. It's the story about uh, the glass eye, an infamous story. And basically, I was in Australia playing, and this guy was was banging his head so hard that his glass eye popped out, rolled over to my foot, and he was pointing at it, get, wanting me to hand it back to him, I guess. And I looked down, and for some reason, thought it was gum. Okay, don't ask me why. I can't tell you why. So eventually I hit a power cord, bent down, flicked it, went into the crowd, and then the guy was screaming at me obscenities for the rest of the show, opening his eyes, saying that was my, you know, blinking eye. And, um, And I couldn't focus on the rest of the set. When I went backstage, he was screaming at me in the crowd. You know, he was very perturbed. And, you know, I haven't seen him since, no pun intended. Oh, he's probably playing, uh, probably acting in the Pirates of the Caribbean, but I shouldn't. Uh... <laughs> now, um, anything you want to say to your fans and the people who are listening to you today? Well, you know, I just want them to understand that there's another side to all of us. There's a human side. I think often enough, people kind of put us on a pedestal and think that we're ministers and we're perfect and we don't do this and we don't do that and nor should we and you know I just want them to know that we're we're regular folk regular folks and we do make mistakes and we have made mistakes and I talk about them in the book and but at the same time you know we strive to not make those same mistakes and I hope that people when they read the book uh, you know, maybe are going through the same situation I went through in a band or, you know, uh, losing their spouse or, uh, you know, m- moving on and remarrying and losing their friends or whatever it is. And maybe they can get something out of it and be encouraged by what I've gone through. That's really my desire and my hope and prayer with this book. And I think you, you also know? want to say something about your relationship with Lisa and how much she means to you and and what role she's played in coming to the point where you have. Yeah, it breaks my heart when, you know, I know her unlike any anybody else, and I, she has the heart of an angel, literally. And she truly unconditionally loves everyone and accepts everyone. She never judges anybody. And to to see people on occasion come up to her and say, are you Lisa? And she says yes, and then roll their eyes and walk away as if they're they're mad that I'm with her or mad that she's with me or whatever it is. I don't know. Right. Uh, it hurts. It hurts, and I feel so bad for her. And, you know, I I just I pray daily that, that God would, you know, cease and stop that because she's a beautiful person, and I hope that people accept her for who she is. Well, Michael, where can we get the book and the album? Because I want to save some time for the music. You can get the book and the album at michaelsweet.com and at amazon.com, at iBooks. Pretty much anywhere you can buy books and buy uh, music uh, is where you can get it. It's available uh, hardcover now, paperback uh, later after the release, and it will be available also, obviously, for Kindle and downloadable, and then eventually audio version as well. Michael, love having you on the show. I want to get you to do the audio version, because can you imagine my voice reading the book? Your voice would sound much better. Oh, I think so, especially all the naughty stuff. <laughs> I'll do it extra deep. Excellent. <laughs> Thank you so much, Michael. God bless you. Your fans are in for a treat with the album and the book. 
It's not buy one, get one free. You have to buy them separately. (laughs) (laughs) Thank you for sharing your world with us, my friend, and God bless you. Thank you, Vip. God bless you too, brother. We're going to lead out with the track coming home from his latest album called I'm Not Your Suicide. Once again, ladies and gentlemen, thank you for listening. Your comments and your follow are so very welcome on my Twitter account at Vip Jazzwall and my Facebook page. A special shout-out of thanks to my wonderful team, William Sanchez and Rick Buser. I'll be back next Sunday at 6 p.m. Eastern with more fascinating stories to kickstart the week. Here's Michael Sweet and the song coming home from his latest album. Every time.